Get ready to embark on a tranquil journey through enchanting narratives. Welcome to a world of soothing dreams. Welcome to Bibbic's Bedtime Stories. Hi, this is Orion, and you're listening to Orion's Bedtime Stories podcast. While I have a number of short stories and fairy tales here, for the next little while, I'll be sharing a large chapter book with you. Illusion by Paula Volsky. For 200 years, the exalted classes have ruled over Vonar by virtue of their dazzling magical abilities. Now, their powers grown slack from disuse, they concentrate on the pleasures their station affords them, ignoring the misery of the lower classes. It is only when the red tide of revolution sweeps aside all distinctions of rank, home, and family that the exalted realize the gravity of their mistake. Thrust into the very center of the conflict is the beautiful Elise Faux de Raval, spirited daughter of a provincial landowner. Now, like those she disdained, she must scramble for bread in the teeming streets of the capital city, the key to her abilities and elusive secret, and find a way to survive in a world gone mad with liberty. Illusion by Paula Volsky Chapter 11 Elise had taken unusual pains with her appearance. She wore Madame Nimay's newest confection, an afternoon gown of translucent featherweight silk, shading by imperceptible gradations of color from the palest hint of blush at the low square neck to a deep vibrant rose at the hem. The duke's silver locket hung at her throat as always, its fragrance richly pervasive. Her honey curls, painstakingly tussled, were caught up with combs of silver and rose quartz. Her cosmetics were applied so carefully that the rouge masking her sleepless pallor appeared altogether natural, even in sunlight. The necessity of undergoing daytime scrutiny was somewhat unexpected. His grace of Ferrante had specified an unusually early hour for their assignation, and it was by this decision alone that his eagerness might be inferred, for by no external sign was it evident. He had received the news of her ascent with his customary impassivity, or so Caritha, who carried her mistress's message, had related, leaving Elise to worry and fret her way through the slow ensuing hours. Preoccupied as she was, she'd quite ignored the chatter in the galleries, scarcely noting the talk of unusual unrest in the 8th district. There was always unrest in the 8th district or elsewhere, and despite all the shouting, it never seemed to amount to much. Now they were claiming that the citizens were up in arms, which probably meant that another wild-eyed reparationist had taken a pot-shot at some gendarme. Elise had tired of the entire depressing topic. In any event, she had matters of greater import to consider. The moment she'd contemplated with such ambivalence had arrived at last, 
And now she was approaching Ferrante's apartment. The vast pier glasses that lined the corridor reflected a graceful, somewhat pale-faced figure, very youthful, unsure, and apprehensive, despite all the elegant polish. And that visible uncertainty, as Zerilyn would surely have reminded her, would never do. Almost she could hear her grandmother's precise, exquisitely modulated tones. Assurance, granddaughter. Absolute assurance is essential. Assume the carriage of an empress, and you'll discover how willingly the world accepts you at your own evaluation. Elise paused before one of the mirrors. Deliberately she composed herself, lifting her chin to assume an expression of such perfect unconcern that even Zerilyn could not have faulted it. Only when she was fully satisfied with the deceptively confident image in the glass did she resume her progress. A servant admitted her to the Duke's apartment, and her eyes skittered nervously about the antechamber. A spacious, high-ceilinged room, simpler and more somber in its decoration than the current mode demanded, showing no sign of feminine influence. Presumably, the Duchess's visits were infrequent. At thought of his grace's long-suffering spouse, Elise's conscience kicked, and the question sprang unbidden into her mind. Why did I agree to come here? Unconsciously, her fingers sought the locket, and a deep draft of its musky perfume somehow reassured her. She was here, she told herself, because she had chosen to come, chosen freely. And the Duchess, a realist perforce, would not care in the least. In any event, such worries were bourgeois. A door opened, and Ferrante entered. Elise's heart jumped, and the goose flesh prickled coldly along her arms. Her emotions were so riotous, her confusion so intense, that only one explanation suggested itself. Love. She had the symptoms, no doubt about it. The dry mouth, the shaky cold hands, the weak knees. Her roommates had described them scores of times. She'd always scoffed, but now she was proven wrong because it had come to her at last, exactly as promised or threatened. His grace might be presumptuous, cynical, even annoying, but none of that was important. She loved him. Likewise unimportant was the nagging uneasiness, the indefinable intimation of wrongness that had pestered her for days. But doubts bubbled at the back of her mind even now. She decided to ignore them. Harder to ignore was the sense of familiarity. Somewhere, sometime, she had felt just like this, known these very sensations. She still couldn't quite recall where or when. And, she assured herself, it didn't matter at all. What mattered was the cessation of a constant pressure, as if in answering the Duke's summons she had ceased dragging against an invisible collar and leash. 
The relief was almost physical, which surely signified love, the genuine article, and a rush of excitement thrilled along her veins. Did his grace share in it? If so, nothing showed. Veronta's face was closed and unrevealing as always. His attire was casual. He wore plain, serviceable garments, riding boots, unpowdered hair, and his nonchalant manner matched his garb. Pausing upon the threshold, he issued curt orders to a couple of lackeys in the room behind, then turned without haste to survey his visitor consideringly and at length, before remarking, You are punctual, I see. Good. That pleases me. Elise flushed. She did not relish the leisurely inspection, as if she were a filly he might or might not purchase. She resented his bland assumption that pleasing him was her aim. A sharp reply rose to her lips, and she stifled it, for she recognized that she actually did want to please him, very much so. It had to be love, but it would be a mistake to let him know it. Certainly he mustn't know that his image had filled her mind for days. He mustn't know that she'd lain in bed, drinking in the fragrance of his locket throughout the sleepless nights. Above all, he mustn't know that the mere sight of him all but confounded her judgment, else her value in his eyes would surely sink, perhaps to nothing. Tongue-tied, she maintained silence, masking her confusion with an impeccable curtsy. You're looking well, Ferrante observed. At least you've had the sense not to trick yourself out like some pastry cook's error in those damned ruffles. Thus his concession to gallantry. Your grace has warned I shall not receive pretty speeches, Elise murmured, smiling. The hair is not to my liking, however. Too many bits and pieces. You'll want to change it. I'm content with it as it is. Elise's smile remained fixed in place. She discovered that a sudden rush of annoyance aided immeasurably in the restoration of her composure. Beneath the surface assurance, however, and despite the irritation, the sense of profound longing persisted. Ah, independence. A hint of rebelliousness, in fact. Well, I can savor the novelty, provided you do not carry it to absurd extremes. And if I do? Then we shall not have a happy time of it, exalted miss, nor, I think, a very prolonged association. You are persuaded that I want one? You are here, are you not? Your grace presumes greatly. We have already discussed that question, I believe. There is little point or interest in repeating the conversation, particularly in view of the limited time at our disposal. Limited time? Quite so. I am engaged to make a fourth at Calique in Vaubergenard's apartment this evening, which leaves us, the Duke consulted his pocket watch, about two hours. Two hours. I see. Are you quite certain you can spare them? It is not an inconsiderable period, observed Ferrante, provided it is used wisely. Therefore, I suggest we squander no more time upon tedious sparring, but rather proceed at once to more rewarding activities, 
You want your dinner, I suppose. It is laid out in the other room. I trust you have a discriminating palate, as I desire your opinion of the new champagne I've purchased. Should your judgment in such matters prove reliable, I shall from time to time require your assistance. Wait, I don't know that I want... Come, this way. He took her arm. Her protests died unspoken, burnt out of existence by the fires that leapt at his casual touch. She caught her breath, amazed. She could hardly believe the flood of sensation, the weakness of her limbs, the fluttering palpitations. Love beyond doubt, and yet... How could I love him? He's obnoxious. But her own responses suggested otherwise. He's old, terribly old, maybe thirty-seven, thirty-eight, or even more. An ancient roué, and he's not even that good-looking. But love was blind, it seemed. Something is wrong here. Something is awfully wrong. She frowned, trying very hard to figure out what it could be. Despite her misgivings, she made no resistance, could make none, as he led her from the antechamber along a short connecting corridor to his bedroom, where a small table by the fireplace was set for two. She seated herself with a certain sense of relief. As long as dinner continued, nothing alarming could possibly happen, or so she imagined. And, indeed, her sense of security seemed justified, as the meal, served by a brace of automaton-efficient attendants, proceeded uneventfully. Ferrante's conversation, civil enough, but inconsequential and matter-of-fact, was subtly galling. A few moments' consideration suggested the reason. He was so relaxed, so provokingly cool. His absolute tranquility suggested a confidence that verged on insult. Doubtless he had enacted this same scene scores of times, perhaps hundreds of times, and he viewed the outcome as a foregone conclusion. And while she sat stewing, charged with suspense and nervous excitement, hardly able to swallow for the constriction in her throat, he lounged there, wholly at ease, sipping his wine and discussing the strategy of Calique. He is insufferable, just insufferable. Uneasily resentful, she made monosyllabic reply. But he did not notice her reticence, or else he didn't care, for his easy flow of off-handed conversation continued unabated. Throughout the various courses, she picked at her food and wondered what it would take to crack his nonchalance. It would serve him right if she simply stood up and walked out without a word. That would give him pause, definitely. No one could then doubt who had come off the victor in this particular exchange. But she didn't stir, almost felt that she couldn't if she tried, and really didn't want to when all was said and done. Love beyond question. In which case, why did it feel so wrong? A fruit ice was placed before her. Childishly, she mushed it about with the bowl of her spoon. 
and looked up to find Ferrante's dark eyes fixed unwinkingly upon her. He said nothing at all, and she felt the blood drain from her cheeks. She dropped her eyes, unable to sustain his stare. The silence lengthened for a few snail-paced moments, and Elise, as if to veil herself in words against his gaze, heard herself ask in a nervously high-pitched voice, Have you not wondered, Your Grace, why I accepted your invitation today? For months you've favored me with marked attention. While you played the disdainful nymph, you've played skillfully enough, but the role has begun to pall. It is time for you to assume another. Repeated rebuffs did not offend you? I am not easily put off. No, but haven't you wondered at my sudden change? Not particularly. I assume you perceived the advantage. But I have wondered, Elise told him. I have been wondering ever since I agreed to come here. There's something strange in it, as if I acted against my own good judgment, against inclination even. That's not intended as an insult to you. I'm only trying to be honest. It is meant to be taken as the measure of your originality, no doubt, that you cultivate a virtue so foreign to your sex. Just so does the gardener force a tropical blossom in the dead of winter, assured of its value as a curiosity. That's offensive, and I won't be spoken to that way. Then I'll speak no more. As we've only an hour left, the time for speech is past. We are agreed upon that one point. He rose from his chair. Paralyzed with indecision, Elise watched him circle the table. He took her hand, drew her smoothly to her feet. Her eyes were round with astonishment as he bent to kiss her. Her lips parted. She inhaled his tobacco and brandy breath, along with the perfume of the locket at her throat. Then a heated wave struck, knocking the breath and intelligence out of her. Dizzy, she clung to him as the only solid support in a whirling universe. He drew back a little, and she stared up at him, breathing hard and dazed by the shock of broken contact. Come back to me, she willed silently. Beyond doubt, her eyes spoke for her, for he bent to her again, and it was as if she had resumed breathing. But the atmosphere she drank was poisoned, and some part of her knew it. Beyond the gale of mindless sensation, some immune little voice asked, What is this? and reminded her, It's not you. Even as she felt her defenses crumbling, her blood rushing, and her reservations melting, something spoke of lies, of deceit, of illusion. Magical illusion. She recognized at last the tantalizing hint of familiarity. She remembered when and where she had experienced this sense of falsity and wrongness. It had been upon the night that she and Uncle Quinns had rescued Drefzino's son. Uncle Quinns had cast a glamour, transforming himself and his niece into giant wolves, or so it had appeared and felt. 
but in the midst of that illusion there had been moments when she'd seen unclearly through the mists to recognize a natural influence. That night's qualms were repeating themselves today. Exalted magic had mischiefed her mind. She knew it now. Ferrante himself owned no arcane power, but he surely possessed the wherewithal to purchase the aid of those who did. He had made a puppet of her, a mechanical doll. He had stolen her will by deception, and she loathed him for it. But her outrage, for all its intensity, hardly served to break exalted magic. Illusions still ruled her, and Ferrante's touch evoked overpowering artificial response. His sure hands were on her, pushing the gown off her shoulders, while his lips traveled unhurriedly down her throat. Her eyes closed involuntarily, and she arched backward against his supporting arm, momentarily oblivious of all save falsely ecstatic sensation. But when his hand slid into her bodice to close upon her breast, she gasped, and the arm underlying the flash of startled pleasure recalled her to reality. It was a lie, all of it. She knew she didn't like or trust him, love notwithstanding. It took all the determination at her command to meet his eyes, to shake her head and mutter breathlessly, No! Amazing the effort it took to do that, and amazing how ineffective it was. Ferranta appeared not to hear her. One hand remained where it was. The other slid up her back to pick deftly at the lacings of her gown. He got the strings loosened within seconds. She didn't want him to stop. The warmth of his touch was delicious and illusory, as some inviolate corner of her mind continued to protest. The warmth of his touch was delicious and illusory, as some inviolate corner of her mind continued to protest. Lies and deception, and he was using her. The thought was so infuriating that she found the will to repeat, No. This time she spoke with more conviction, but still failed This time she spoke with more conviction, but still failed to convince her host. Ferrante's hands were knowledgeable, and she found her breath coming in gasps. Her will to resist was rapidly dwindling, was all but gone. Stop! I'm in earnest, she appealed faintly. Ignoring the half-hearted plea, he stooped and lifted her without effort. Alarm could not damp her thrill of instinctive enjoyment, her pleasure in his strength, and her own feeling of lightness in his arms. Advancing several paces to the bed, Ferrante deposited her upon the velvet coverlet, and then he was there with her, and all her senses knew the rightness of it, while some small mental voice that nothing seemed able to silence continued to complain, Lies! It isn't you! Lies! Correct. But did it really matter? He was Ferrante, after all. He's using me. 
a strong sense of outraged identity, what some might have called arrogance, furnished unexpected resources. The voice inside her, the one that protested and argued and could not be altogether stifled, she dimly recognized as the expression of an essential individuality, its perceptions true and intact. She listened, and the voice grew clearer. Her fury at Ferrante's perfidy blazed, burning hot as her pleasure in his touch. It seemed then that the illusion lost some of its power, although at least a part of it, she now saw clearly, was not at all false. This minor victory upon an unfamiliar mental battlefield strengthened her, and she was able to accuse him. You've used magic. Do you care? The duke was flushed and short of breath. No, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I don't care. It was what she wanted to say. It was what he expected her to say, and she wouldn't say it. Not for a kingdom. The locket. The perfume. Not now. It's a cheat, she cried, and an oddly alien inner knowledge told her what to do. Somehow she found the strength of will to tear the locket from her throat. The fine chain broke easily, and she threw the ornament aside. Ferrante drew back a little to stare at her, clearly surprised. Presumably his former dupes had offered no such resistance. Elise drew a deep, unperfumed breath that chased the fog like a cold salt breeze. The clean air was extraordinarily bracing. Gone were the mists, the confused impulses, the bewildered artificial longings. All at once she was free again. She was herself. And the man so close to her was a contemptible trickster, whom she herself had never chosen. Cheat! she flung at him, and made as if to rise. Ferrante held her down, his weight pinning her to the bed. Let me up! Get away from me! Elise struggled futilely. It's gone too far for that. Stop fighting or I'll have to use force, Ferrante advised her. He was panting and covered with sweat. At some point he'd removed his coat, and the thin cambric shirt clung to his wet flesh. At least shuddered, wondering how she could ever have thought him exciting, magic or no magic. He was repulsive, and all she wanted in the world was to get away from him. If she'd had a weapon, she would have used it. But she was unarmed, trapped beneath his solid bulk, and he pawed purposefully at her skirts. Filling her lungs, she uttered a scream that undoubtedly pierced through the adjoining walls to the ears of the duke's personal servants, who serenely ignored it. The next instant, Ferrante's hand clapped down on her mouth. Elise bit hard enough to draw blood, and he recoiled with a startled curse. Her nails raked his cheek, leaving four red tracks, and he sat up abruptly. For a moment, he stared down at her, and the expression in his eyes was genuinely frightening. He looked angry enough to beat her senseless, angry enough to kill her. 
The Duke, however, controlled his impulses. Rising slowly to his feet, he uttered a single harsh command. Get out! Elise shot from the bed. Pulling her disordered garments about her, she dashed from the bedchamber, through the passage and antechamber, and out of the Duke's apartment. Her hair was streaming in wild disarray, her face was wet with tears, and she was sobbing uncontrollably. Down the corridor she fled almost blindly, instinct guiding her toward the refuge of the maid's quarters. Kirtha would be there, ready with comfort and soothing words. Marinotte and the other girls would be there to mock the Duke's boorishness. Their laughter would certainly mend her spirits. Even the complaining presence of the sour old Marquise Vaucouves would prove comforting now. Around a corner she skidded on a slippery marble tile, then on along the Queen's Gallery, so named for the uniformly flattering royal portraits that lined its walls. The gallery, she discovered, was unusually populous. Courtiers and their agitated lackeys rushed this way and that. They scarcely bothered to glance at her, despite the disheveled appearance that would ordinarily have aroused much amused speculation. An air of oddly apprehensive confusion reigned, but at least, sunk deep in self-absorbed distress, did not pause to analyze. Her supposed sanctuary lay hundreds of yards distant. Reaching it was all that mattered. Reality intruded at last in the form of a footman who jostled her in passing. Elise's sobs cut off abruptly, and she turned to stare after him, astounded. The fellow was already halfway down the gallery. He had not even stopped to apologize, to implore her pardon and indulgence, to make proper amends. He had behaved as if unconscious of her exalted rank and such overt insolence was really not to be tolerated. She would certainly complain, if only she could be sure of recognizing the oaf's face again. But it seemed there were numerous oafs to complain of. As she stood there, astonished, tear-stained face stiffened into a scowl, she noticed the scurrying servitors, so oddly bereft of all proper deference, passing by her without troubling to lower their eyes. She noticed the uncharacteristically harried air of their pale masters, and the peculiarity of the scene finally impressed itself upon her. Still frowning, dawningly uneasy, she continued along the gallery. As she advanced, the courtiers and menials, indiscriminately mingled, continued to stream on by her, and now their alarm was unmistakable. Some of them, forgetful of all propriety, were actually running. There were the greatest of seigneurs, the amplest of dowagers, jogging and jiggling in their gorgeous silks, stays creaking and high heels clattering, faces red and moist beneath white powdered wigs, a ludicrous sight that somehow failed to amuse. Where in the world were they all going? And in such a state? 
The press of humanity was increasing all around her, and she felt as if she were walking against the wind. Then a hand upon her arm halted her, and a voice spoke in her ear, Not that way! Not that way! The hand belonged to the Baron Vaux Nizil, vice president of the Royal Academy. A plump, kind-faced, normally placid old gentleman who had never before addressed her directly. Now the round cheeks were white, and the near-gray peruke sat comically askew. Baron, what's the matter? Why, go back! But, back! He insisted, and left her, moving off at a smart trot. She stared after him, open-mouthed. But how extraordinary he was! How rude and ridiculous! It occurred to her then to wonder if the Bivere had caught fire. Surely such a great cold pile of stone could never go up in flames. But what else explained this absurdly frenetic activity? Well, fire or no fire, she would continue on to the maid's quarters. Her servant, her beautiful new clothes, jewelry, and other personal belongings were there, and she had no intention of leaving the building without them. She pushed her way another few yards down the gallery, struggling against an increasingly urgent human current. As she advanced, she caught a curious, unfamiliar sound, something like a deep, distant thunder of breaking waves. Then she was through the tall double doorway at the far end, and the sound was suddenly much louder and closer, swelling to an elemental roar that somehow sent the chills knifing along her veins. She stood upon the first landing of the Bivier's immense central staircase. Behind her, a broad marble flight ascended to the third story. Before her, the stairs divided, descending to the gold and crystal foyer in a great double curve, like a pair of welcoming arms. Welcoming? The foyer below was mobbed, a ragged, filthy horde of bellowing, Beasts, lunatics, savages, she didn't know what else to call them, had somehow managed to force entry. Such a presence was inconceivable. There must have been hundreds of them there, and more were pouring in every moment through the shattered doorway. As they entered, some pounded off to the left, along the corridors that would ultimately lead them although they did not as yet realize their good fortune, to the palace kitchens and wine cellars. Others turned right, heading confusedly for the indoor winter tennis courts. The majority charged straight for the staircase, where a pathetic muster of horrified servants, backed by a few members of the king's bodyguard, stood blocking their advance. The resistance was crushed, literally, within seconds. As Elise gaped in pure disbelief, truncheons swung and bludgeons flailed. Such weapons were actually redundant. The sheer force of the human stampede was lethal in itself. The nightmare herd surged forward, screaming, and those in its path were simply trampled. The defenders vanished. 
A few survivors fled up both arms of the double staircase, the mob roaring close behind. For a paralyzed instant, Elise stood watching them come at her from two directions. The moment somehow stretched like kneaded dough, and they seemed to move so slowly, like figures in the ugliest formal mask ever conceived, that she believed herself dreaming. She must be dreaming, else the world had gone mad, or far worse, was simply not the place she had always taken it for. Then time slipped back into place, her limbs unfroze, and she ducked back into the Queen's Gallery from which she had just emerged. Without conscious thought or intention, she followed in the wake of the Baron Vaux Nazil and his companion, for it seemed to her proper and correct that the men, the exalted, the natural leaders, would know where to go and what to do. What to do? They would call out the royal guardsmen, no doubt. They would chase these criminal brutes from the Bevier. The worst of them would be imprisoned. The leaders would be executed. The world would return to normalcy. And proper precautions would ensure future safety. For such an outrage must never, never occur again. Behind her, the crash of the door flinging open, a shrieking storm of voices, and the first peasant contingent burst into the gallery. They spotted the fleeing maid of honor at once. Though they hooted gleeful obscenities after her, displayed no inclination to give chase. Rather, the royal portraits lining the walls caught their attention, for the nearest was that of the detested Lalize. Whoops of exhilaration arose. Lalize's image was torn from its place, hurled to the floor, ground beneath booted heels, and thoroughly soaked with urine, after which collective attention turned to the older paintings. For some minutes the invaders busied themselves slashing, defacing, and defiling queenly visages. When this diversion palled, they turned their wrath upon the mirrors, the windows, the chandeliers. Minutes later, they left the Queen's gallery all but buried in broken glass. On they rampaged along the corridors, smashing, gouging, and rending as they went. The pleasure this destruction afforded was keen but superficial. It was satisfying but signified little. Presently it dawned upon even the dullest of invaders that a definite plan of action was required. Here they encountered some difficulty, for their objectives had been nebulous and diverse from the beginning. They had originally come to request concessions of the king. That was clear enough to all. In Dunyalus Square they had discovered they possessed the power to demand, but the exact nature of those demands was not easily agreed upon. Some called for justice, others for bread, some wanted reparation, others screamed for the death of the queen. The matter might be argued at length, but not before they had located the sovereign, source of all things desirable, who lay concealed like a treasure at the heart of this vast stone labyrinth. The first order of business was to track him down. 
his person secured, negotiations might commence. This thought in mind, a great unified party set off in search of the king's apartment. Elise knew nothing of this. Viewing the invaders as little more than animals, she would scarcely have credited their ability to formulate plans, but she did not for a moment question their capacity or their will to wreak mindless havoc. In their present state, their idiot passions inflamed by popular rabble-rousers, they were certainly capable of murdering the king, the queen, and the entire court, herself included. Perhaps that was exactly what they intended. Incredible to imagine, almost unbelievable. But she could actually die, despite, despite her youth, despite even her great eyes and rose-petal complexion. I must get out of here. I'll get Kirtha, and we'll go to Grandmother's house. Easier said than done, perhaps. She was hurrying along a fourth-story corridor lined with the private chambers assigned to certain favored courtiers. The rooms, little more than garrets, actually, cramped, drab, all but comfortless, were nonetheless wildly sought after, for an exalted able to secure living quarters of any description within the Bivier itself possessed tangible proof of royal favor and correspondingly high status within competitive court circles. Now doors up and down the hall were slamming shut. She could hear the sound of furniture being dragged across the bare floors as the occupants short-sightedly sought to barricade themselves within. It was useless, of course. Neither locks nor piled furniture would keep the hooligans out, yet nobody seemed to think of leaving. A glance out of one of the windows told her why. From that high vantage point, she could see all the way to the pale marking the edge of the royal enclosure. The grounds below, and Dunyala's square beyond, were swarming with armed Sherinians, whose shouts and brutish bellowings rose clearly to her ears. There must have been thousands of them down there, waving their pikes and rusty cutlasses, cavorting like homicidal apes. The Bevier was surrounded, and escape clearly impossible. And no sign at all of the crowd-queller, the royal guardsman, or the vonerish guard, who should have driven the criminal louts off long before they ever set filthy foot upon the royal property. Where were the soldiers? Why didn't they come? And why did no one with the talent employ exalted magic and self-defense? The hurried slamming of doors was her only answer. But we're exalted! How could this happen to us? To me? She would not allow herself to recall the Cavalier Vaumuriel's depressing predictions. They did not bear thinking of. The invaders had not as yet reached the fourth story. But surely it would not take them long. She couldn't afford to loiter there in the corridor. But where to go? Where to hide? Her grandmother, she recalled irrelevantly, would doubtless scorn to hide herself. Well, she's just better than I am, then. Despite her months of residency, 
she did not know the palace well. Her explorations had not taken her beyond the maids' quarters, royal suites, banquet halls and ballrooms, state chambers and galleries, a few private apartments, the territory ordinarily inhabited by exalted residents and visitors. Of the vast warren of servants' quarters up in the attic, or the subterranean maze of storerooms and connecting passageways that would in fact have furnished excellent concealment, she, like most of her peers, had learned nothing. She did not even know how to reach them. A host of palace servants had already gone to ground below, but there was not an exalted among them. At least, victim to the selective ignorance of her class, now found herself at a loss, and at last could only reaffirm her original intent. She would look for Kirtha in the maids' quarters. The maids of honor, personal attendants to her majesty, probably warranted the protection of the royal bodyguard, and thus the maids' quarters would prove as safe a place as any. Picking up her rosy skirts, she began to run. A narrow staircase near the end of the hall descended from the fourth story. She emerged into a little arched and columned foyer marking the intersection of two major corridors, one of which led to His Majesty's chambers, the other to the Queen's. The moment she exited the stairwell, she caught the discord of common voices and the crash of breaking glass. They had evidently paused on the second-story landing to smash everything in reach, but that delay would be minimal. Within moments, they'd be ravening at the door of the king's apartment, and there they would face the bodyguard, already assembled in the corridor. Even as she watched, the first of the hooligans reached the top of the stairs. Whooping, they burst into the corridor, and the soldiers fired. Bullets sang along the hallway, and Elise shrank back with a cry of astonished alarm as a ball smacked the wall not two feet from her head. Several of the invaders fell, and the peasant whoops gave way to howls of primal rage. Not fear. In the heat of that moment, bound together by feverish shared consciousness, it was as if they had lost all normal sense of self-preservation, or rather, as if they perceived as invulnerable the single great mob entity that annihilated individual awareness. Straight down the hall they thundered, indifferent to the defender's musket fire. A second fusillade dropped dozens, without slowing the advance in the slightest. A moment later, the peasant vanguard encountered the bodyguard's bayonets. Elise did not stay to view the outcome. A few of the invaders, a knot of sun-browned, foul-mouthed market women, had noticed her. Somehow those jeering, unsexed harpies seemed even worse than their menfolk. Malicious, she sensed and entirely merciless. When they started for her, she whirled and ran, but even as she sprinted for the maid's quarters, she recognized the futility of flight. The invading force was overwhelming, 
the bodyguard wholly inadequate protection, and there was really nowhere to hide. It can't be happening. The maid's quarters had been left unguarded and unlocked. She ducked in, uselessly slamming the door behind her. She stood in the little sitting room, now deserted, but littered with plates of pastry, overturned wine bottles, half-full glasses, and other such evidences of hasty departure. She called out Kirtha's name, received no reply, quickly checked the four suites, and found them deserted. Maids, servants, and watchdog all had vanished. For a moment she stood there almost forlornly, then heard the seagull screeches of the women at the door, and fled. There was only one way to go. Along the drab little capillary connecting the maid's quarters with the queen's apartment, into her majesty's sitting room, then through the vast royal chambers she ran, and the harsh voices behind her changed tone suddenly as the pursuing market women came upon the room-sized closets housing Lalizé's wondrous wardrobe. Raucous cries of semi-mocking delight arose, and the chase was momentarily abandoned. Elise didn't pause until she came to the queen's lacy pink and gilt bedchamber, where at last she encountered humanity. A contingent of the bodyguard stood a contingent of the bodyguard stood barring the entrance to the long, narrow, rarely used passageway that linked Lalazé's bedroom with the king's. She stopped on the threshold, regarding them in bewilderment. Fortunately, she was recognized. Butterfly, remarked an officer, employing the popular nickname for the maids of honor. Let her through. The soldiers shifted, and a path appeared. But where are the royal guards? cried Elise. Quick, the officer snapped his fingers impatiently. She did not need to be told twice. Through the gap in the soldiers' ranks she slid, through the door that promptly closed behind her, and then she was running along the unfamiliar passageway ordinarily traversed by royalty alone. The dimness and perfect silence of the heavily carpeted, thickly walled place contributed to her sense of dreamlike unreality. This utter disruption of the world she knew, the real world, still seemed to her so fantastical that she almost fancied herself embroiled in some childhood game of make-believe. The door at the end of the passage was locked. The room beyond was occupied. She could hear the murmur of voices, but her own presence went unnoticed, or else unacknowledged. For a few moments she knocked and rattled without attracting attention, and she wondered if she would have to go back the way she came, back to face those screeching Amazons who would tear her apart because they could not be her. Then a wave of fear and anger swept over her, and she beat the door violently, shouting, Let me in! At once! Do you hear me? Open! She punctuated each command with a savage kick. 
They heard her that time, and must have recognized exalted accents and attitudes, for the door opened. Disheveled and red-faced, Elise stepped into the king's bedchamber, which she found crowded as if for a livy. Their majesty's closest personal friends, advisers, and attendants had gathered there, along with an assortment of favored servants and some of the bodyguard. Most of the maids of honor were present, together with their maidservants and their watchdog. With a few exceptions, most notably His Grace of Ferrante, the greatest courtiers had converged upon this chamber to cluster about their threatened monarch. At the center of the pale, perfumed crowd, Dunulus XIII sat fidgeting. White-faced, but tolerably composed, the king observed the unaccustomed scene with an air of incredulous, vaguely troubled confusion. A couple of his intimates, Vaulieu Villard and Vaux Bragenard, stood near, whispering unsought, impotent counsel. Beside the king, upon the brocade settee, was Lalaise, unwontedly quiet, nerve-strung, and all but quivering with tension. Tightly she clung to the hand of her friend, the Princess Varian, who whispered comforting endearments. Behind the queen hovered Dr. Zirk, offering nostrums that were, for once, refused. The king and queen of Vonar, and they both looked so small, so vulnerable, so mundane and insignificant, stripped of the royal glamour designed to veil mediocrity. They stood revealed as two very ordinary mortals. Almost it appeared they had actually shrunk in size. Seeing the king and queen thus mercilessly exposed, verged upon indecency, and Elise automatically averted her eyes. In silence, she crossed the room to join her fellow maids. The Maidsmauve girls formed a tight little group. Jezine, Nian, and Marinotte huddled defensively. Near them stood Kertha, who now tearfully flung her arms about her mistress. Such was the nature of the moment that Elise not only suffered the presumptuous embrace, but actually returned it. What's happening? she breathed, instinctively shy of speaking aloud in that charged atmosphere. Hush, listen, Marinot Viste commanded, equally low-voiced. There was little conversation. Urgent whisperings buzzed close about the king and queen. Otherwise, a disbelieving, almost tranced silence reigned and thus it was easy to hear the din of conflict, only a few yards distant. In the corridor outside the royal apartment, the peasants were screaming for the king. What instinct or intelligence had guided them to the right door, no one could guess. But somehow they had managed to track their quarry through the marble maze and now only a hopeless handful of the bodyguard stood between Vonar's monarch and his incensed subjects. What remained of the bodyguard had, in fact, already withdrawn to the first antechamber, 
the door of which they had barricaded as best they could. Even as Elise stood listening, a heavy, rhythmic pounding commenced. The invaders intended to beat down the door, and the occasional blind firing of the cornered soldiers scarcely deterred them. The pounding continued without pause, continued until Elise could feel the blows jarring along her nerves to shake her heart and mind. She wanted to scream, she wanted to run, and here she was, caught fast in the world's most elegant trap. It was only the recollection of her own exalted breeding, together with a curiously distant mental image of her grandmother Zerilene's flawlessly controlled visage that enabled her to maintain false equanimity. Similarly unrevealing were the other exalted faces around her. But the servants fared worse. The menials were uniformly sickly of complexion. Many were sobbing and a few, prey to trembling limbs, had collapsed to their knees. Kirtha remained on her feet. The tears were oozing from the corners of her eyes, but she maintained the silence of a brave child. Moved, Elise squeezed the maid's hand, and Kirtha whispered tremulously, Miss, what'll happen? Why don't they do something? She was not the only one to wonder. Everywhere the set faces and staring eyes posed the same question. Doubts underscored by relentless beating at the door. The king himself seemed prey to conflicting impulses, now moved by one counselor or another, now pausing to confer anxiously with his wife, now harking dutifully now sinking into glazed reverie. But a decision of some kind was required, and even Dunulus knew it. When the rending crunch of wood signaled the imminent demise of the outer door, he rose to his feet. I will speak to them, the king decreed, straight-spined but a little shaky-voiced. I will hear their grievances, and this matter shall be mended. A subdued muttering of protest greeted this announcement. The king wavered, then rallied. They are my subjects, he declared. I have allowed an I have allowed an estrangement, and the results are atrocious. My people are confused, agitated, resentful, and destructive as frustrated infants. Beneath the anger, however, the love they bear their sovereign remains intact. I know it. I sense it. My kindness will reawaken their affection. We shall talk and learn to know each other again. Mutual comprehension ensures amity. To understand all is to forgive all. The king appeared prettily sincere in his sentiments. His faith in the power of good intention was simple, absolute, and possibly suicidal. Armed with nothing beyond ill-informed philanthropy, he actually meant to face the invaders. A few pleading voices arose and were disregarded. 
for Danielus possessed the huge obstinacy of the weak. Once charted, nothing short of natural disaster could alter his course. Now, having reached a decision at last, he jumped to his feet and pattered for the exit. No one presumed to restrain him. Through the apartment sped the king, with a bright comet's tail of appalled courtiers trailing close behind. Excited almost beyond fear, Elise followed. The din of conflict intensified as she advanced. By the time she reached the besieged antechamber, the noise was deafening. The guardsmen were shouting. The creatures out in the corridor were howling and cheering like frenzied devils drunk on victory, and the blows upon the door were cataclysmic. Fissures already marred the gilded surface, and even as Dunulus entered the chamber, the blade of somebody's axe broke through, and high-pitched yelps of lunatic elation arose outside. Sensations still dulled by the persistent sense of unreality that even now did not leave her, Elise watched as the king issued orders to his bodyguardsmen. A blue scarf signaling a request for parley was attached to the point of a soldier's bayonet and thrust through the hole in the door. Fresh howls of triumph arose without, and a cry went up. Open! Open! Visibly uncertain, Danielus conferred with his associates, then issued additional orders. Scribbling a note on a scrap of paper, the captain of bodyguard pushed the missive through the hole. Presumably the note offered unacceptable terms, for after a moment's silence, a storm arose in the corridor, and then a single voice bellowed, Open! We want the king! The king! The king! A fierce chorus. The pounding resumed. The door shook and fresh cracks appeared. Dunulus squared his shoulders bravely, glanced once at his queen, who stood very straight beside him, then nodded to his officer, who appeared to remonstrate. The king shook his head, and all present heard his clear reply. I will prove my love by placing myself in my people's hands. They would not harm their sovereign. I know it. Lordly hands flew to the hilts of small, pathetically light dress swords, but the weapons remained sheathed. A gentleman soiled his blade and his name by drawing upon commoners. No circumstance justified exception. As king, queen, and trapped exalted watched in fatalistic fascination, the barricades were swiftly dismantled. The bolts were pulled, and the splintering door flung wide to admit the triumphant mob. Sleep tight, dear.